Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. And welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great new show for you today. I'm here with Ellie Shanker, the Arthur Blank Family Foundation Assistant Professor of Modern European Jewish History at Emory University. She's joining me to discuss her new book, Confessions of the Shuttle, Converts from Judaism. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great new show for you today. I'm here with Ellie Shanker, the Arthur Blank Family Foundation Assistant Professor of Modern European Jewish History at Emory University. She's joining me to discuss her new book, Confessions of the Shuttle, Converts from Judaism in Imperial Russia, 1817 to 1906, published in 2016 by Stanford University Press. Ellie, welcome to the show. Hi, Shira. Thanks for having having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to be speaking to you today. Me too. <laughs> so then, <laughs> let's delve into it then. You know, I have to say, converts from Judaism, this topic seems to be getting some attention as of late between your book and the recent work by Todd Endelman, who was an earlier guest on this show. Why do you think scholars in Jewish studies are currently so interested in the topic of converts from Judaism? Yes. So yeah, converts from Judaism has definitely become popular, um, and popular enough that I was even part of a cohort a few years ago um, at the Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, all about converts. It was a year devoted to the study of converts and conversions in Jewish studies. Um, and I think part of the reason it's so interesting is that we're all interested in um, understanding groups, social groups, how they form, how they create their boundaries, how they maintain their boundaries. And conversion is one of those moments when you could, um, converts are these boundary crossers, right, who kind of cross into different groups. And they help us to see how groups 
how groups differentiate themselves from other people, how they maintain borders or try to maintain borders, and how converts kind of show how those borders can be um, violated or transgressed. Um, and in Jewish studies, it's especially interesting when trying to think about Jews and their neighbors and trying to understand Jewish difference um, over time and space. Um, and so that's part of how I got interested in the topic of conversion. And speaking of your own developing interest in this study, um, how did you originally become interested specifically in converts within the Russian Empire? And what types of archives and source materials were you looking at to better understand their stories? Yes, I um, became interested in grad school. Um, as we all go through grad school and, you know, always are you're in coursework with an eye to the dissertation project, um, I became interested in the little t- like snippets of archival material um, that I found in several articles talking about Jews who converted to Christianity in the Russian Empire. Um, and there was always footnotes saying, you know, if only Western researchers could get into the Russian archives or the former Soviet archives, perhaps we could find out so much more. Um, and I was lucky to be in grad school and come of age um, when Western researchers were enjoying um Get, you know, getting access to former Soviet archives. Um, and I got that archival bug that many of us got um, about what could be found and what it would be like to be the sleuth in the archives. Um, and so I um, was able to tap into a lot of church and state records of the Russian Empire that are located in various archives in countries of the former Soviet Union, such as Russia, the Ukraine, um, Belarus, Lithuania, um, and there was meticulous record-keeping kept by many state bodies about the goings-on of various ministries um, and also of the Russian Orthodox Church about conversions and not just converts from Judaism, but conversions from all the different tolerated faiths in the empire. Um, and I was lucky that in some ways it was really the politics of the Russian empire that enabled this great record-keeping because um Religious one's religious status um, was a kind of key element of how that person was ruled or how their group was um, ruled in the Russian Empire. And so religion had a very strong political um, um, implications. And as a result, conversions were documented, right, for um, for state record keeping. Yeah, I wonder if you can actually say more about this, because, um, you know, if you can tell us a bit more about the lay of the land in Imperial Russia, for you paint a picture far different than what I think many people are familiar with, that being Fiddler on the Roof, let's say, with the isolated Jewish shuttles surrounded by the larger community of soldiers and other Russians, all of whom were Russian Orthodox. But you actually say Imperial Russia is much different, even in the Pale of Settlement. Yes. Um, so a key element framing my book is that um, in thinking about the Russian Empire and then the, this, the imperial nature of it, which is by nature diverse, um, for so long, the emphasis had been on kind of ethnic or national diversity. And only recently have scholars become really interested in actually religious diversity or religion itself as a category being so crucial in terms of understanding the organizational makeup of the empire. 
Um, and so the Russian Empire, um, by design in the 19th century, turned to religion as a way to help to kind of discipline and organize the empire. And the state was very interested in in connecting with or bringing clerical leaders into statecraft um, so that it, they could different clerics of different faiths could help to control, document um kind of keep their populations in check for an empire that was quite sprawling and diverse and over a very large landmass. Um, so it's in this context that I kind of broached the topic of conversion, because I think for so long, many people's thoughts about Jewish conversions in the Russian Empire and the Pale of Jewish Settlement was that, number one, the state wanted it and that there was a lot of conversion coercion. And number two that's set alongside of a kind of social cultural picture of Jews in the Pale of Settlement being very um, separated from all other populations and kind of living in exclusively Jewish spaces, moving according kind of in the rhythms of Jewish time and having really no other kind of cultural or social inputs. Um, and something I wanted to do in this book project was to use conversion as a way to rethink um, kind of cultural social encounters between Jews and others and Jews and their neighbors in the Russian Empire. And that this these neighborhoods that Jews lived in were not just Jews and let's say Russian soldiers or Jews and some Russian Orthodox peasants, but Jews were living in the western provinces of the empire that themselves had been um, taken through imperial expansion, and they were quite diverse um, religiously, ethnically. Um, Jews lived alongside sizable populations of Catholics, of Lutherans. There are even some um, Tatar Muslims peppered into the mix in the, re- in the western provinces. Um, and that when it came to religion, religious encounters, there were lots of different kinds of, um, especially right, Christian confessions that Jews were living alongside of. So you're mentioning that the state does, in fact, um, it's very interested in all of its diverse religious populations, especially some of them in the Western provinces. Um, can you talk about some of these early 19th century efforts by Tsar Alexander I or Nicholas I and how they approached conversion efforts, both with regard to the Jewish populations and perhaps other religious communities in Russia? Sure. So um, the book kind of charts um, this interest, this Russian imperial interest in religion um, and how it came to define the Russian state's relationship to its Jewish population. I mean, I start from the reign of Alexander I, so in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, and he was a unique czar in that he was very ecumenical. Um, for him, he was very into Christianity, and that is a kind of guiding principle of culture and politics. But for him, it, it could be very ecumenical. It didn't necessarily have to be defined by Russian orthodoxy. Um, and he was one of the first emperors who welcomed in, for example, even um, evangelical missionaries from Western Europe to be able to operate um, in the Russian Empire and to do their kind of um, evangelical proselytizing. Um, he set up a, a, for a Russian Bible society that brought in lots of different um, Christian voices in terms of thinking about Bible scholarship in the empire. So it was a kind of interesting moment in the beginning of the 19th century where there was a kind of investment in Christianization, um, 
but it was in, of an ecumenical form. Um, and this is where I start the book because I start to kind of trace the empire's interest in Jews and conversion and how it was, it started in this multi-confessional way in which it wasn't about um, Jews necessarily converting to Russian Orthodoxy, but it, to really any of the tolerated Christian confessions of the empire. And under Alexander I, it was not seen to need to be done in a kind of, um, any type of coercive way. Um, but he invested money and funds into convert colonies, places where Jews could go if they wanted to convert and live alongside other converts, get some tax breaks. Um, he promoted it through um, Bible translations into many different imperial vernaculars. Um, so for him, I'd say it was kind of a mission, mission light um, and definitely of a kind of, of an ecumenical bent. And then from there, we move into the next czar, Czar Nicholas I, um, who's very kind of notorious, right, in Jewish history for being the czar to conscript Jews into the Russian army mm-hmm. um, and the army as a site of forced conversion, especially for young underage recruits um, who often could be recruited as young as officially, I believe, 12, but I've seen records as young as eight or nine, um, and that it was specifically young recruits that were often subject to um, coercive missionary practices in the army. Um, so under Nicholas I, we do see a, a kind of state mission to Jews, um, but one that after his reign um, was very much turned on its head with the beginnings of the great reform period in the Russian Empire, starting with Tsar Alexander II. Um, and then my book goes through the reform period, um, the ambivalence about conversion and how that was no longer a state practice, and how really through the end of the old regime until 1917, there was a lot of state ambivalence about whether or not they wanted Jews to be Christians or they wanted Jews to stay Jews. Um, and was conversion you know, even something that could be achieved, was that possible? Can a Jew stop being a Jew? You start having some of those questions in the late 19th century about what is Jewishness? Is it just religion or is there something more um, internal to that um, that's not malleable right to the waters of baptism? So um, these are some of the kind of political currents that I trace as the backdrop of my book in which I kind of counter this very broad assessment, longstanding assessment of the Russian state as just wanting to convert its Jews. And I argue that it's much more complicated than that um, and not so clear cut. Indeed, I was actually really struck by um, something that you wrote in the book that, as you mentioned, the state, if anything, had a very ambivalent position on Jewish converts. And that conversion um, was, as you said, in fact, a Jewish affair. And I wonder if you can tell our listeners a bit about what you meant by this and who was advocating perhaps for conversion amongst the Jews and why. Sure. So um, I say it's a Jewish affair insofar as that so much of the um, of the activity regarding Jewish conversion came from former Jews or came from converts from Judaism who tried to sell um, 
the who tried to sell the idea of converting the Jews as something that was desirable or even achievable to the Russian state and to the Russian Orthodox Church as well. Um, and I go through a bunch of profiles or histories of some of these different converts from Judaism and their stories of trying to make this project something that was relevant and meaningful to the state. Um, and I show how in some ways some of the state's um, sponsorship of some of these people was only reactive. It was when they were, when they were, when there was a kind of a former Jew who came with a business plan, basically, about how to convert the Jews and how they had the tools to do it, the translation work to do it, um, the linguistic skill set, um, that they were in the right place and they knew how to engage Jews in their own kind of cultural language. Only then, did the state and sometimes the Russian Orthodox Church actually marshal the funds that were necessary to support some of this work. Um, but it's the reactive um, um, nature of this that really interested me, that it wasn't coming from the top down, but rather it was more of a kind of grassroots efforts from converts themselves. And some of the converts that you profile in the book, uh, when did they have their moment of conversion or what sort of urged some of these individuals to decide to convert? So um, several of the ones that I profile came of age in the Nikolaevin period, so during under Tsar Nicholas I, when there was a state mission to Jews in the army. And you could read in a lot of their excitement or optimism about the work they want to do and how, of course, the state wants to support it, that they're kind of living in this moment of when they came of age in the army or, or themselves as Kansanists, um, as these underage recruits who were missionized to. Um, and that it's interesting when they that it's when they come of age. So for many of them, it's after the Nikolaevin period. So it's after this state missionary project has ended that they are kind of speaking an older imperial language, right? In, in a new era when, um, this missionary work is not as self-evident, especially in the period of the great reforms. Um, so some of these people, so that that's one cohort who kind of came of age in the army. Um, and then you have a few others, um, you know, random ones here and there, um, who some of whom have come across um, evangelical missionaries from Western Europe, especially um, through the British Empire, who really dominated the missionary kind of um, activity and and market really in Europe. Um, some of who through the London Society um, um, in London or um, a few other British societies. <laughs> and some of them um, came across some of this um, kind of active, right, Protestant missionary work. Um, and they wanted to model something like that, but under the auspices of the Russian Orthodox Church. So if the, these converts from Judaism and even some of these um, earlier Tsar-led um, missionary efforts or um, sometimes even enforced efforts to convert Jews weren't necessarily successful in terms of numbers, right? I believe you cited something about upwards of 80,000 Jews convert from Judaism over the course of the 19th, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, it seems that you're actually arguing in your book that 
It was really the day-to-day encounters, even in rural areas, that are responsible for most of the conversions that occurred of Jews from Judaism. Um, so I'm wondering where these encounters took place and what we can maybe learn by studying them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so after I kind of look at the broad political or cultural backdrop to conversion in the Russian Empire, um, I start on the ground about trying to understand conversions, especially um, from a kind of social and cultural perspective. Um, so not about um, necessarily, um, I'm not, I, I look at civilian conversions, so not necessarily the converts, right, who converted in under duress in the Russian military. Um, and not even so much Jews in the later 19th century who converted to get into Russian universities, for example, mm-hmm. um, in the period of the numerous Clausus laws um, that restricted or limited the number of Jews that could get into institutions of higher education starting in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, but I'm really interested in the majority, the kind of the face nameless majority um, who right lived in the western provinces and the pale Jewish settlement and and for whom for so many of them the way from their conversion records and what we know of them conversion was really a kind of a, a social affair in that um, it happened through neighborly relationships friendships at times local love affairs um, but it was Jews learning about Christianity through Christian friends and neighbors and that being the kind of the threads or the fas- what facilitated conversions more than any kind of beyond any kind of strategic or um, you know, form a strategy or kind of motivation that's often focused on by a lot of the scholarship on conversion, which is the big question of, well, why did Jews do it and what did they have to gain? Um, And I wanted to go beyond that because I felt that the literature or the material that I had access to was so much richer than just trying to kind of maybe get at a historical motivation, but it really kind of got cut deeper into the social relationships um, in small towns and villages um, that facilitated these conversions. Um, and of course, this really, um, this really caught my interest insofar as I kind of started this project um, with an interest in cutting against this, you know, long-standing kind of romanticized view of Jewish life in Eastern Europe as being so separate and isolated, mm. um, and um, kind of so 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 Judaized in a sense. So um, so then this uh, second part of my book really tries to kind of take a a, a local or um, approach to looking at relationships as social relationships and how those they facilitated um, conversions. And one space that I focus on is the is the uh, small town or village tavern um, in Jewish Eastern Europe. That was a very strong part of kind of the uh, local Jewish economy. Um, much of the kind of liquor and alcohol trade and all its different forms was um, often um was often um, run by Jews, and this was a place where Jews serviced right a larger um, clientele. And I and, and the tavern, of course, is a place where you know liquor flows, inhibitions can you know go to the wayside. Um, but a really interesting kind of uninhibited space of social or interfaith 
um, relationships or interactions. And several of the conversion files that I read um, referenced the tavern as the place where these social relationships were spawned. And one of the things that really struck me about your conversation about the tavern is also the gender dynamics of who is in the tavern and how the social relationships between Jews and non-Jews um, might um, occur. So what if you could say more about some of the gender analysis that you really undertook in this project? Sure. Um, for so long, the conversion in the Russian Empire, insofar as it was so connected to the story of Jews in the army, was really an exclusively kind of male affair. Much like I think a lot of the emphasis even in modern European Jewish history and thinking of conversion as strategy of socioeconomic mobility was often seen as something um, of kind of much more male-dominated. Um, and here in these stories, and especially, for example, in a place like the tavern, where often it was um, a, um, the, the wife um, and daughters who are often the front people in a tavern actually operating it on a day-to-day basis, um, that this was kind of a front lines often for Jewish women um, to interact with um, non-Jews in this kind of interesting um, neighborly uninhibited space. And a lot, most of the files that referenced um, the tavern as the space of interface sociability were about female converts, um, and that being the space where they met somebody, um, and oftentimes leading a kind of some type of uh, romantic liaison that led to conversion because there was no civil marriage in the Russian Empire for um, an interfaith couple to marry. They had to get married um, in one um under one religious um, confession. So the, the Jewish partner had to convert to Christianity. Were Christians allowed to convert to Judaism during this period? No. Um, the uh, imperial law held apostasy from Christianity as a criminal offense. Um, and that could be, the punishment could be um, the uh, hard labor and exile in the East. Hmm. We'll have to come back to that in a minute. But first, I actually wanted to ask you about another topic that you discuss at length in your book, which is that of Jewish violence, both rhetorical mm-hmm. and real, mm-hmm. towards converts. Mm-hmm. Um, what did it mean both for Jewish communities, especially in the Western provinces, but also non-Jewish Russian officials um, in thinking about both real and imagined forms of Jewish violence towards converts? What does this reveal about the communal dynamics around conversions and relationships between Jews and non-Jews in the empire at this time? Mm-hmm. Um so um, actually, this topic is getting a little bit, um, it's gotten some play lately about Jewish violence. Um, there have been some interesting kind of uh, like popular journalistic pieces about mm-hmm. the potential of there being a history of, of Jewish uh, like honor killings where Jews would kill converts. Um, and um, well, I'm sure you'll hear more about it and from, from some, some other people who are doing some interesting work right now. Um, but so the issue of Jewish violence. So 
Here, um, whereas we just spoke about the tavern and kind of neighborly sociability as one motive, like the facilitation of conversion, I see the flip side of these local conversions as the fact that these conversions happened under the gaze of one's family and community, right? These weren't happening in like a far off metropolis or city (laughs) where a young person, a young adult, you know, ran away and kind of started a new life anonymously. But these things happened in the thick of Jewish life. Um, And that one on this maybe sliding scale of neighborly relations, anything from, you know, kind of friendship um, and romance, the very the kind of the far end of this was also of um, antagonisms and of violence, and that often these like kind of everyday um, religious relationships, right? I mean, many different religions inhabited the very same spaces. Is that there was a kind of status quo or a certain kind of you know um, coexistence, but that at times conversions, right? A local conversion would be that, um, that issue that would, that would, um, unsettle the kind of accepted coexistence, um, that boundary crosser that really kind of threw relationships off. Um, and these stories of Jewish violence come up in a lot of different source bases. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, did Jews respond with violence towards out converts out? Um, did that really happen? Um, and also what was the kind of political ramifications of Russians really getting involved in that conversation on Jewish violence? Because this became a very prominent theme in Russian journalism um, when reporting on Jewish conversions in the, in the Western provinces. So, um, so um I, I I think I found that there are definitely cases of, of Jewish violence, whether that meant kind of co- coercively trying to return a convert back to the Jewish community, um, perhaps um, kidnapping uh, or abducting a convert, often t- usually women or young women, um, and at times even stories of murder. Um, and so I see this as part of you know, one way that Jews responded to conversions in a very proactive way, but by no means the definitive way, nor any kind of set cultural practice. Um, I think that there were individual cases of it, but not necessarily, I'm not sure we could call it a cultural practice, um, because Mm -hmm. there are many more, um, many more examples of Jews trying to go through legal channels or using the powers of the Jewish community and its magical record keeping of being able to contest conversions in other non-physical ways. Um, but, but in the Russian press, and I, there was a very interesting conversation about Jews as violent towards their co-religionists or those who converted out. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very interesting kind of conservative Russian attempt to paint Jews as intolerant, that their violence was a form of radical intolerance and one that was really out of step in the, in this polemic um, with what um, many of these conservative journalists, you know, painted as this very rosy picture of Russian toleration. And that if one wanted to be a part of this imperial family, um, Toleration was kind of the key glue holding it all together. Um, and of course, this was very polemical. Um, and there's a lot happening in these debates, but it became an interesting moment where conversion was used as a way to kind of talk about tolerance and intolerance um, and where Jews fit within the, um, the Russian imperial body politic. 
Let me ask you another question then about this imperial Russian body politic and sort of some of these more liminal categories. As you mentioned earlier, apostasy from Christianity was not allowed um, during the 19th century. So I was really struck when I came upon the word Marinism in your book about imperial Russia. Um, Marinism, of course, usually being the term um, scholars and people use um, for the Muranos of the Iberian Peninsula in the late medieval period, those who kept um, or thought to have kept Jewish practices after converting to, um, in that case, Catholicism. Mm-hmm. How did this term come to be employed by both Jews and um, imperial Russians at this time? Mm-hmm. So, um, so there were several Jews, um, Jewish historians of late imperial period, um, Jewish writers and artists for whom the figure of the medieval or late medieval Murano um, seemed to kind of capture their imagination, especially insofar as related to um, the history of coerced Jewish conversion in the Russian army. Um, and that perhaps, and perhaps for some, even casting it a bit larger in seeing even kind of the socioeconomic um, motivations, right, for Jews to convert as being part of a broader package of there being kind of formal and informal channels in which um, kind of Jews could be led to convert in the Russian Empire. And um, and how the Murano kind of captured their imagination as this figure who outwardly converted, but inwardly, right, maintained um, various, uh, you know, ritual um, practices. And um, so this captured some of the attention of some kind of Jewish authors. Um, and in the imperial um, Russian um, state as well, there were times when bureaucrats compared, you know, the kind of the place of conversion in the Russian Empire to how it operated in the Iberian Peninsula um, in the late medieval period. And so um, I use that as a framing device for looking at some of the the kind of in-betweenness or the liminal um the liminal place of the figure of the convert from Judaism in the Russian Empire. And how in some ways the convert um, created a lot of tensions, um, especially for state authorities, when trying to, you know, understand its population and how people fit into a very broad classification system that the empire put forward. And that was one where people were legible by virtue of their religion and by virtue of their of their social estate or their kind of or their economic estate, right? What what, what were they of the urban class? Were they um, agriculturalists? Were they merchants? Um, and oftentimes converts who kind of seem to live or operate between worlds, many were unsure of exactly who they were exactly. Were they sincere Christians? Were they not? Um, what were their kind of social and cultural practices? Um, this figure of the Murado seems to capture that ambiguity and the, and, and the anxiety that it invoked, right, in, in the empire. So, um, I, I, there's a whole chapter in the book looking at some of the tales of some of these converts who tried to relapse officially or unofficially back to Judaism, even though it was illegal, and about some of the 
the um, legal cases that ensued because of that, or ways in which witnesses were brought to bear to kind of validate or invalidate um, the identity of these converts. Um, and it gets into this whole kind of interesting zone um, where you see the um, complexity of convert identities um, and how um, it was very unsettling, actually, um, for a a state like Russia that was so invested in religious classification and the clarity of religious identities. So then how did the rise of nationalism and then later um, the Russian Revolution affect both conversion rates and people's understanding of Jewish converts? And I realize that's a, a very large topic for yet another century. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so the late imperial period, so the late 19th, early 20th centuries, um, in some ways there's a... Um, a kind of reactionary period, the rise of a strong Russian conservatism that challenged some of the reforms um, of the reform era. Um, And insofar as we're talking about converts, it casts a lot of questionability about can non-Russians, non-ethnic Russians, non-Christians really convert, um, convert to Christianity? And can they really become... Um, integrated right into the empire. And so there was a lot of um, questions about the project of Jewish conversion or, um, and there were even, it went so far even as to that there are some laws passed or ways of tracking converts where their Jewish origins were flagged. Um, and, And so that's kind of where some of this, greater Russian nationalism that's percolating at this time, um, where some of the effects of that are felt, which is in the, the kind of the questioning of Jewishness and it's, and, um, if it can really be, um, erased with baptism. Um, and then the other piece is moving into the kind of the, into the interrevolutionary period. So between the failed Russian, Russian revolution of 1905 and then, the revolutions of 1917, um, we have this brief period of a kind of a Russian um, imperial attempt to divide its opposition and to try to create just enough reform to kind of keep the autocracy afloat and keep revolutionary activity at bay. Um, And one thing that is made is that one reform in the spirit of freedom of conscience, so not just freedom of religion or toleration, but freedom of conscience, is that converts to any um, of the um, Christian confessions, so Russian Orthodoxy and other Christian confessions, could relapse legally back to their ancestral faith. Um, and this takes place in 1905 and 1906. And this is kind of the coda, the end of my study of conversion, um, insofar as this kind of era of toleration and how it expanded into um, tolerating Jewish conversions to many different faiths in the empire, um, how there's, it kind of comes full circle with the legalization of relapse. Um, but even with this legalization of relapse, there actually is a kind of upsurge in conversions from Judaism in the um, kind of unsettling period um, after um, 1905. So a few years later, when it was clear that some of the reforms that were promised weren't really going to happen or happen in the way that people hoped, um, and that there was um, um, some of that um, 
discomfort or a sense of foreboding can be seen a little bit in some of the um, heightened conversions just really before um, the end of the old regime in 1917. Mm. So after producing a book like this, are you taking a little break from um, embarking upon a next project or is something already in the works? <laughs> um, something's always in the works. Uh, <laughs> Um, Yeah, I've started a new project Um, a little bit. You'll see some of the continuities from this conversion project. Um, But I'm always interested in kind of history from the margins. I'm interested in kind of maybe the non-traditional spaces. Um, And I'm looking at projects for uh, Jewish religious reforms in Eastern Europe or looking at modes of kind of non-traditional Jewish uh, religious cultures. Excellent. So that's where I'm at, and I'm trying to get knee-deep in um, really schooling myself on the sociology of religion and really looking into theories of secularization and all different kinds of things. Um, but um, but I'm looking forward uh, to moving along with it. And I'm looking forward to reading more about it. So excellent. <laughs> Ellie, thanks again for being on the show. Everyone, check out Confessions of the Shtetl Converts from Judaism in Imperial Russia, 1817 to 1906 by Ellie Shanker, published in 2016 by Stanford University Press. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.